What is up, Ewoo crew? As human beings, it's in our nature to want answers to all our questions, especially those that are confusing, suspicious, and unnerving. Many of us are willing to spend thousands of dollars just to have the answers to our pressing questions at our fingertips. But the families of these five individuals may never get the answers they are looking for and may have to live the rest of their lives without knowing what really happened to their loved ones. Here are five of the most mysterious missing person cases that even today can't be explained. Before we get started, if you love mysteries, be sure to hit the like button and subscribe. Now, let's get into it. Number 5. Patrick McNeil Established in 1841, Fordham University is sprawled across New York City, named after the Fordham neighborhood of the Bronx, where it was originally located. It is the third oldest university in the state of New York, boasting of more than 15,000 undergraduates and postgraduates studying across three campuses, Rose Hill in the Bronx, the Lincoln Center in Manhattan's Upper West Side, and Westchester in West Harrison. The school has a buzzing student life and is particularly renowned for its large number of theater organizations and a cappella groups. There are many reasons why Fordham University is a world-renowned educational institute. But in 1997, they made the headlines for an entirely different, much more sinister reason. 21-year-old Patrick McNeil was a junior at Fordham University taking a degree in accounting. With his classes mainly concentrated in Rose Hill in the Bronx, the school's main and original campus. He was a tall, handsome young man, medium-built with dark hair and a shy smile. Among his group of close friends and roommates, he was considered to be a ladies' man, a moniker he earned for being meticulous and particular about his physical appearance. Patrick had big dreams. He was going to join the FBI after graduation, a job that many of his professors thought he was well-suited for. He was a bright student with an excellent work ethic, able to expertly balance his studies with his active social life, and a volunteer with the Fordham Ambulance Corps, a position that suited him well due to his background as the captain of his high school's football team. He also worked booking acts for Tops, the university's entertainment lounge, and as a driver shuttling a school van from the university's Bronx campus to its other campus at Lincoln Center. As with most college students, Patrick often went drinking with his friends to blow off some steam and to relax after an exhausting day full of classes. At the time, the Dapper Dog, a bar located on Manhattan's Upper East Side at 1768 2nd Avenue, was a popular watering hole for Fordham University students, a preferred spot thanks to their lack of ID checks and liberal bartending regulations, both of which created the perfect environment for underage drinking. Neighborhood residents often filed complaints about public drunkenness and excessive noise. On the cold night of February 16, 1997, Patrick left the Rose Hill campus and went to the Dapper Dog to meet up with some of his friends, one of whom was his roommate who was bartending that night. The group started out with a few drinks, but as the evening dragged on, Patrick proceeded to get more and more drunk until he was completely wasted. 
He spent the wee hours of February 17th throwing up in the bathroom of the dapper dog. With his stomach churning and his head aching, Patrick informed his friends that he was through with their all-night drinking session and announced he would take the subway back up to Fordham's Rose Hill campus. One of his friends said that she would go along with him, but when she failed to appear outside the bar, he decided to head home alone. Patrick was seen by onlookers as he stumbled up 2nd Avenue and turned on East 90th Street, all the time while being followed by a suspicious van. That was the last time anyone ever saw him. Almost 10 days later, on February 26th, more than 600 volunteers gathered at the Port Chester Middle School Auditorium to prepare themselves to search for Patrick who had officially been declared missing when he failed to materialize for any of his classes. Detectives from the Westchester and New York City Police Departments scoured hospitals, soup kitchens, and even Rikers Island, working under the theory that Patrick had somehow lost his memory and may have turned up somewhere seeking aid, but unaware of his real identity. More than 10,000 flyers were hung from the city to Yonkers emblazoned with the word missing along with Patrick's face. After nearly an entire month canvassing every nook and cranny of Upper Manhattan, Patrick's body was recovered 11 miles downriver, floating face up near a pier in the East River, close to the Bay Ridge section of Brooklyn. This spot was located more than 12 miles from where he was last seen at the Dapper Dog. It's important to take note of the fact that Patrick was found face up a position which is highly unusual for a person who has drowned. The autopsy report then revealed something even more highly unusual, indoor fly larvae laid in the groin area. If Patrick somehow died in the river and remained there the entire time after his death, how did indoor flies lay larvae in his body? Experts were stumped. Even with this in mind, Patrick's death was ruled an accidental drowning. The medical examiner revealed that he had only a moderate amount of alcohol in his blood, 0.16, and therefore was not completely wasted at the time of his death, as he was when he left the dapper dog. His final autopsy report also showed that Patrick had no broken bones, head trauma, or any other physical injury, which more or less ruled out the possibility of foul play. There were also no traces of drugs in his system, which further baffled the investigators. After all, how in the world did Patrick, a healthy, athletic man in the prime of his youth, wind up in the river, cold and lifeless, seemingly through no fault of his own? Because of the suspicious and unexplainable circumstances, Dr. Charles Hirsch, the chief medical examiner, ruled the manner of Patrick's death as undetermined. The aftermath of Patrick's death was messy. Five charges were issued against the dapper dog, including the sale of liquor to a minor and the sale of liquor to a visibly intoxicated person, along with the whole slew of noise complaints that the neighboring establishments had filed against them. On May 31, 1998, the owners of the dapper dog agreed to pay an $8,500 fine 
For serving alcohol to underage students, Patrick's family also filed a $20 million lawsuit against the Dapper Dog and its owners, as well as against the bouncer and the bartender who had been Patrick's roommate at Fordham at the time of his death. The family claimed that the defendants all knew Patrick was under the legal age to drink, but had served him alcohol anyway, continuing to do so even after he became so intoxicated that he could barely stand up straight. The suspicious particulars of the case fascinated and alarmed the American public, prompting the country's leading investigators and forensic experts to chime in with their own ideas about the case. One of the experts was the renowned forensic pathologist, Dr. Cyril Wecht. When interviewed by journalist Christy Peel, he said, there's no way this man is accidentally going to fall into a body of water and the fly larvae was found to have been laid in the groin area. It's an indoor fly, not an outdoor fly. So we have a body that was already dead before it was placed in the water. I would call it a homicide, yes. In short, Patrick had been kept alive for an extended period of time before his death, long enough for indoor larvae to find their way on his body, before he was placed in the waters of the East River to appear as if he had been drowned. The medical examiner's report allegedly noted black decomposition on Patrick's face and body, explaining it was a result of exposure to the elements and advanced decomposition. However, Detective Kevin Gannon, the New York Police Department detective who was assigned to Patrick's case and continues to investigate after retiring, disagreed. He believes that this was actually charring, suggesting that Patrick had been burned from his head down to his mid-torso. According to his website, gdinvestigations.com, possible ligature mark noted in the autopsy report also suggested that Patrick was bound and tied by the neck to a chair, restrained and tortured by his abductors. Online sleuths remain skeptical. Is the PI a forensic pathologist or medical examiner? One Redditor asks, did they have direct access to the body? Or were they like us and doing things like making guesses from photographs? It's important to note that Detective Gannon was the NYPD detective assigned to Patrick's case, not a random investigator. Detective Gannon agreed with the assumption that Patrick had not immediately drowned after he was last seen. He said, he was stalked, abducted, held for an extended period of time, murdered, and disposed of. They're psychopaths. They have no remorse. Most eerily, while investigating Patrick's death, Detective Gannon came across another suspicious disappearance. Almost exactly one year later, Larry Andrews had come from Westchester County into New York City by train with a large group of friends, looking to celebrate New Year's Eve in the hustle and bustle of a city that never sleeps. They were planning to check out the festivities in Times Square. However, Larry never made it. The group had gone bar hopping practically the minute they arrived in New York, starting at a bar called Houlihan's, which was located close to Grand Central Station. At some point during the night, one of Larry's friends noticed that he was missing. His body was found six weeks later on February 12th, floating in the Bay Ridge River, nearly the same exact spot where Patrick's body was also found. His father was distraught, claiming that his son had disappeared off the face of the earth. When Larry's body was found, he alleged that there would be no reason for him to walk all the way to the water on the west side. 
Because of these questionable circumstances, the Andrews family hired a private investigator named Gil Alba, but his investigations proved to be fruitless. He found nothing. No leads to follow, no suspicious background, and no one with a vendetta against Larry. It seemed like his father's claims were true. He had simply disappeared off the face of Earth. Patrick McNeil and Larry Andrews are just two of the many other hundreds of young, college-aged men who died in the suspicious drowning man phenomenon. Most of them had vanished, turning up months later, floating on rivers with their cash and valuables still intact. Their bodies displayed no visible or obvious signs of foul play, and their deaths were reported either accidental or undetermined. But the circumstances surrounding their deaths were certainly questionable. Kevin Gannon, one of the original investigators of Patrick McNeil's death, had promised the college student's parents that he would find their son's killer during the early days of the case. More than 22 years have passed since then, yet even to this day, he hasn't given up on his promise. Now retired from the police force, Gannon is still working on Patrick's case. He, along with fellow former New York Police Department detective Anthony Duarte and professor of criminal justice Lee Gilbertson, have been investigating the mysterious deaths of Patrick and Larry and the hundreds of other men who died in a similar fashion. They have dubbed this an epidemic of college-educated white men, healthy, athletic, and in the prime of their youth, disappearing during or after nights out with friends to be later found dead in local rivers and lakes. This so-called epidemic has spread beyond New York state lines across 25 cities in the Northeast and Midwest. For instance, in 2009, 24-year-old Navy veteran William Hurley was found floating in the Charles River in Massachusetts. Like Patrick, his death was ruled an undetermined drowning. Since 2008, Gannon and his group have argued that this epidemic, this disturbing phenomenon, is the work of a gang-related organization of domestic terrorists, which they've dubbed the Smiley Face Killers due to the happy face graffiti found at some of the alleged crime scenes. The group also claims that the crimes are motivated by jealousy, pointing out that the targets were young men who, from the outside, could be perceived as privileged and the best of the best. They further hypothesize that the victims didn't drown, but were actually targeted and kidnapped before finally being murdered by criminals who remain unknown, at large, and at liberty to kill. As compelling as the idea sounds, no hard evidence has ever been uncovered to prove that the smiley face killers do exist. Until that happens, this sinister and murderous gang remains to be just that, a theory. Number 4. Mark Cranach and Stephen Wright 23-year-old Mark Cranach of Uniontown, Pennsylvania, and 20-year-old Stephen Wright of Guerneville, California, were male strippers and models working at a strip club for gay men called Remington's in Toronto, Canada. Although neither of them was gay, both Mark and Steve were largely considered to be the best of the club's strippers, with owner Bill Hidvegi even calling them the fabulous people and exemplary dancers. 
Mark's stage name was Nick, while Steve was known to the Remington's patrons as Trevor. They were part of a group of six Americans who were dubbed as the Backstreet Boys of the gay entertainment world when they made the news in June 2005 after their applications for a Canadian work visa to perform as exotic dancers were denied. Eventually, they were all issued temporary licenses and entered Canada to work. On August 21st, 2005, Mark and Steve traveled from Toronto with their friend and employer, Steven Serrard the CEO of French Connection Francais, for a much-needed weekend break from work. With his modeling agency, Stephen had brought the two young men from their small hometowns to perform in some of Canada's most popular clubs. He had suggested a trip to Montreal as a special treat to celebrate a successful summer, one that was bound to be the start of their long and successful careers. The three men, accompanied by another American stripper named Derek Manzi, had spent the day exploring Montreal's tourist sites, including the Basilica and the Old Town. They even hired a horse and carriage ride and played several rounds of blackjack at a local casino. Just before 10 p.m., the three dancers headed to Vatican, a nightclub located on Crescent Street in Montreal, where they all went their separate ways. As the club was closing, Derek, who was busy talking up one of the wait staff, told Mark and Steve that he would catch up with them later. At around 3 a.m., Derek, while eating a quick snack at a Burger King, received a call from his friends, who said they were headed to another after-hours rave club, a place called Red Light, which was located 30 minutes away in the city of Laval. Derek initially told Mark and Steve that he would meet them there, but later changed his mind and headed back to the hotel instead, arriving there at 3.35 a.m. The next morning, Derek and Steven awoke to find that Mark and Steve had still not made it back to the hotel. They each tried their phones repeatedly, but to no avail. As the day went by with no sign of the pair, they grew worried that something may have happened to them. Finally, Stephen decided to file missing person reports with the Montreal and Laval police. However, this was initially rejected since only 12 hours had passed. By the evening, Stephen was a nervous wreck. He went down to the Montreal police station and insisted on filing a police report, annoyed at the apathetic attitude that the officers exhibited. Later, he would claim that the negligent reactions of the authorities worsened upon learning that Mark and Steve were male strippers. Approximately 10 days later, the fractured and badly decomposed bodies of Mark and Steve were found in a rock quarry, located more than 300 feet from the Red Light Club. Their deaths were initially ruled by the Canadian authorities as suspicious, due to the fact that no trace of violence showed up on their autopsies, despite the severity of their injuries. Neither Mark nor Steve seemed to be missing any clothing, valuables, or money, which ruled out the possibility of a robbery. More than that, though, their toxicology tests came back inconclusive, which meant that there was no clear evidence as to whether they had taken any drugs or illicit substances that might have led to their death. Ultimately, it was determined that the pair had been victims of a 50-foot fall into the quarry. This ruling was put into question when the investigators gathered surveillance footage taken from the security cameras outside the Red Light Club. Surveillance uncovered that Mark and Steve had dashed into an alley leading to the quarry as a taxi chased them. 
The footage showed the taxi following the pair towards the fenced pit before both the cab and the men left the frame. The taxi was then seen on camera two to three minutes later, heading away from town toward Montreal. The men were never seen again. The police assumed that the two had stiffed the cab driver, seeing as the usual fare for a trip from Montreal to Laval would have been around $40. When the pair's wallets were checked, authorities realized they did not have enough money to cover both the cab fare and the club's entry fee. Perhaps they had attempted to escape from him by jumping over a fence and heading into the quarry. However, the cab driver shown in the surveillance footage never came forward despite pleas from the authorities. Neither the race nor gender of the cabbie is known, and his secrecy led the authorities to believe that he either had a criminal record or was an illegal immigrant. Either way, the question of why the cabbie chased them was never answered. The spokesman for the Laval police force, Guy Lajeunesse, later told the media that it seemed Mark and Steve had died for a measly $40. It's unpleasant, but sometimes you do crazy things, he reportedly told the Tribune Review. Another newspaper, the Montreal Gazette, also pointed out that the quarry's warning signs were only written in French, postulating that Mark and Steve were unaware of the dangers that it posed. Naturally, this theory was doubted and criticized by Mark's family. His mother, Janice, questioned why the cabbie driver who was purportedly either a criminal or an immigrant, would draw attention to himself by chasing down the pair. Moreover, she claimed that the pair had enough money to pay the $40 fare, pointing out the fact that they had left a $200 tip for a waitress back at the Vatican. Seeing the surveillance footage further confirmed her doubts. Mark had been on the track team, and his mother claimed that the way he behaved in the video made it seem like he was running for his life. Janice believed that there had been a third individual inside the cab with Mark and Steve, and this unknown person had ultimately caused their deaths. More than that, though, she claimed that the adult entertainment industry was behind their deaths, believing that Stephen and Derek hadn't told Canadian authorities everything and were hiding something. She also criticized the investigations conducted into their son's death saying that the coroner's report was based on an inadequate examination of the facts, as well as the crime scene. I don't mean to trash the police department up there, and I don't know if it's time or money or what it was, but I don't feel like they did a thorough investigation and I was counting on them to do that," she told the media in a 2007 interview. Number 3. Kaylin Louder Born on January 21st, 1984, Kaylin Lauder had an eventful yet turbulent life. In 2006, she graduated with a degree in social work from Utah State University. While Kaylin never showed any signs of mental illness, her father claimed that her long stints of unemployment led her to suffer from bouts of depression, and Kaylin had just lost her job. On the other hand, her mother claimed that Kaylin was still in good spirits despite being out of work, further saying that her daughter had been updating her resume and applying for open positions. The bright future that Kaylin had ahead of her seemed to indicate that she wasn't the sort of person you would expect to suddenly disappear, but unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. 
In the days before her disappearance, her roommate told investigators that Kaylin had been acting strangely. A little after 9 p.m. on September 26, 2014, Kaylin made a call to 911, the first of what would be a series of bizarre phone calls. In this call, she insisted that there was a fight going on in her condominium's clubhouse, claiming that guns were involved and that she had heard gunshots. I did hear a fight that seemed very brutal. Were weapons involved or mentioned? Um, yes. Yes? What kind of weapons? When police arrived, they found a wedding reception with no signs of any altercations, and guests confirmed that none had taken place. An hour later, Kaylin called 911 again, but hung up before the call was answered. When the dispatcher called her back, she sounded confused and troubled, unable to remember her own address. Her mumbles were practically incoherent, although she mentioned that her roommate considered her to be delusional and paranoid. At 8.18 a.m. the following day, Kaylin made her final 911 call, wherein she claimed that there was an intruder in her home. They're stealing from my house. Get out of my house. Shut up. Are they saying anything? Yeah, I heard someone say, hey, don't so there's obviously two of them. While she sounded convinced and extremely distressed, her roommate insisted that no one was inside the house, pointing out the locked bolt on their front door. But if the door's still locked, it's not possible. They must have a key or something. Why is the door still locked? Well, I can't explain that, but I heard like two people talking. When authorities arrived to check out the scene, there were no signs of a break-in or robbery and Kaylin's roommate confirmed that no one else had been inside apart from the two of them. That same day at 3.30 p.m. and 5.45 p.m. respectively, security footage showed Kaylin outside her condominium in an area that led to a creek. She was dressed in shorts and a tank top, even though it was pouring and had no shoes on and no umbrella. A little while later, she was shown running in a light jog, a speed which didn't look as if she was being chased. In the final clip, Kaylin was seen carrying her dog into the same location outside, talking to either herself or her pet. This was her last known location and the last time that she was seen alive. Later that day, she was reported missing to the police. Her body was only found nine weeks later, on December 1st, in the Jordan River in West Valley City, a spot that was about five or six miles away from her residence. The body was discovered yesterday in the Jordan River, and today authorities were able to confirm that it was louder. A city crew inspecting the drainage pipes had made the gruesome discovery, coming across the submerged and partially concealed body of Kaylin Louder. She had been obscured by plant debris that had lodged against a concrete bridge support, a police spokeswoman stated. The footage and photos you're looking at now show the actual location where Kaylin was found, under the bridge in the waters of the river. Family crowded around the scene near the water, appearing baffled at how Kaylin had possibly ended up there. The autopsy into the case of Kaylin's death came back inconclusive, and the cause of her death was undetermined due to exposure to the water, with nothing to indicate a clear explanation of how she died. 
Besides Kaylin's distraught nature the day before her disappearance and the strange phone calls, she was a healthy 30-year-old woman who ended up submerged in a river with no signs of what killed her. These suspicious circumstances surrounding her death led the Louder family to suspect possible foul play. Later, her family would say, without influential people and deep pockets, our family fears we are left to accept what the authorities have speculated, but we know this was not an accident. While the case of Kaylin Lauder's disappearance and eventual death has been officially closed by the police, theories are still rampant. Some point out the inconclusive autopsy reports, along with the questionable particulars of the case. Others also say that while the creek outside her apartment connected to the Jordan River, the waters were usually shallow and the current was certainly not strong enough to drown an otherwise healthy woman. There are also those who claim that the bizarre 911 calls that Kaylin placed indicate that something more sinister was abound. While some internet sleuths suspect Kaylin was experiencing a mental health-related episode, her cousin claims she had been having normal conversations just hours before she disappeared, including a Facebook chat with a high school friend. And despite her roommate noticing her delusional behavior prior to her disappearance, Kaylin had never been diagnosed with any mental illness. Online theorists seem to agree that while a psychotic break is possible, perhaps due to the sudden loss of her job, it seems highly unlikely. Redditor Captain Otter Pop states, 30 is a little older than the average age of onset schizophrenia, so although it certainly doesn't mean it never happens, that's a little unusual if she hadn't ever displayed any symptoms prior. Police also stated that they did not find any medications in her condo to indicate she was being treated for any mental or emotional issues. Others online speculate that Kaylin could have been under the influence of drugs, but according to the family's statement regarding the medical examiner's report, her toxicology report indicated nothing fatal or illegal in her system. And finally, others point to the flooding in the area that evening due to the pouring rain. But again, it just doesn't seem this is what likely resulted in Kaylin's death. But since the authorities have refused to investigate further and it seems no other information was ever made public by her roommate, we may have to accept that Kaylin Lauder accidentally drowned on the afternoon of September 27th, 2014. Number 2. Brian Welzine For many, the first day of the new millennium was unforgettable. It held the promise of a new era, one of boundless opportunities. But for the family of 21-year-old Brian Welzine, it was anything but. Brian was a student at the Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, where he was majoring in finance. On the eve of the new millennium, he had driven up to Chicago with two friends, Nick Young and Mike Wittrup, to attend a Y2K New Year's Eve party jockeyed by a former NIU student, Reed Kane. Upon their arrival in the city, the group checked into the Ambassador East Hotel, where they would be sharing a room with Reed and two of his other friends. Afterward, they all headed to a pub called Irish Eyes, where Brian, who wasn't a big drinker, only had between two to five Long Island iced teas. By 2 a.m., he was more than ready to return to the hotel and rode back with Reed and his friends. 
leaving behind Nick and Mike, who decided to go to another bar, one that would close much later, at 4 a.m. Back at the hotel, Reed had let his two friends out in the front of the hotel lobby when he noticed Brian sitting quietly in the back seat, practically unresponsive. He claimed that Brian threw up twice before stumbling out of the vehicle, whereby then Reed's other friends were already inside the hotel. Reed drove to a parking spot about two blocks away and returned to find that Brian had disappeared. Thinking nothing about it and assuming Brian had entered the hotel safely, he went up to the hotel room and slept off the day's exhausting events, later saying that he had no clue that something foul was at play until he woke up in the morning. By this time, Nick and Mike had already returned to the Ambassador East Hotel. When his friends failed to find Brian in their room, they started searching the area around the hotel but gave up and went to sleep, believing that he would turn up the following day. But when 1 p.m. on January 1st, 2000 rolled around and he was still nowhere in sight, they decided to call the police. During the inquiry into Brian's disappearance, many of the hotel's guests and staff remembered seeing a seemingly intoxicated Brian vomiting near the hotel entrance. The doorman, a bartender, and a man parked nearby all reported seeing him, describing his movements to be jello-like. Brian's body was found on March 17th, more than two months after he was first reported missing. A local had discovered the remains on a beach in Gary, Illinois, which is approximately 25 miles away from downtown Chicago. The cause of the death was officially listed as asphyxia due to drowning. However, the questionable nature of Brian's disappearance meant that everyone, even the authorities and the investigators, doubted the purported cause of death, with one investigator calling it the most perplexing case that he had ever handled. Local law enforcement put forward a theory that Brian had fallen into Lake Michigan and drowned and claimed that his body had traveled 30 miles south in the water before the chilling discovery was made. But none of Brian's friends and family believed this theory, saying that he would have never made it to Lake Michigan all on his own, given that he had been throwing up and struggling to even stand up straight on the night that he disappeared. In other words, Crossing the eight lanes of traffic on Lakeshore Drive to get to the lake would have been an impossible feat, even for someone sober. An autopsy also later revealed his blood alcohol content to be at 0.084% when he died, leaving him just over the legal driving limit. This meant that while he was drunk, he wasn't intoxicated enough to the point that the idea of him falling into the water and drowning without putting up a fight was plausible. More importantly, Brian was an avid football player and sported a relatively muscular body frame, thanks to his frequent gym sessions, and should have been able to stop himself from drowning. Robbery was also ruled out when Brian's wallet, with all his money still in it, was recovered on his body. There was no obvious signs of struggle or foul play, which gave credence to the idea that he had simply fallen into the lake rather than being pushed or dumped. And then there was also the fact that he had been found 30 miles away from Chicago. Most people who had gone missing from the area were found within two miles of entering the treacherous waters of Lake Michigan. 
Adding to the suspicious circumstances of the case was that Brian's body showed only little to moderate signs of decomposition, even after more than two months of his alleged death. This piece of evidence prompted one of the original investigators on the case to comment that the body looked like it had only been in the water for a week, further claiming that the facts about the case didn't add up. Because of these doubtful circumstances, Kevin Gannon and his team strongly believe that Brian was another tragic victim of the Smiley Face Killers, the same group that they believe could have also killed Patrick McNeil. There were significant similarities between Patrick and Brian's cases. For one thing, they both fit the victim profile of the Smiley Face Killers, handsome, athletic, and college-aged men bursting with privilege. Neither fluid in Brian's lungs nor significant amounts of sand in his esophagus was found, which meant that drowning and being carried by the water was highly unlikely. His organs were even described as well-preserved, and his body showed signs of fixed liver mortis posteriorly, which indicated that he had been positioned on his back after death for more than 12 hours, a scenario that would have been impossible if the police theory of him falling into the lake was to be believed. A mannequin buoy analysis combined with the SARops probability model further showed that while a body could travel from Chicago to Gary, it would have only taken around 36 hours, not 77 days. Brian's situation was also eerily similar to that of Patrick's, as well as the other possible victims of the Smiley Face Killers. Like many of them, he had also been out partying and became separated from the rest of his companions as the evening progressed. Pathologist Cyril Reck also examined the facts of the case, along with the autopsy photos, concluding that Brian's behavior that night had to be the result of ingesting something other than alcohol. After all, he did only consume a few glasses of Long Island iced tea, a cocktail that usually contains only a small amount of tequila and vodka. There were a lot of questionable and suspicious facts about Brian's case, along with glaring inconsistencies between the theory that had been posited and the evidence uncovered. Because the facts of his case simply don't add up, Many believe that Brian Wellson was yet another victim of the elusive Smiley Face Killers. Frank Paul Pelusic, a UIC professor and clinical toxicologist stated, there's just no way that amount of alcohol caused what happened to him. He proposed a theory that Brian could have been slipped a drug called GBH, a substance that his body was never tested for. To this day, Kevin Gannon and his team are still investigating the case hoping to bring justice to Brian, Patrick, and the hundreds of other men whose deaths seem to suggest that something more sinister than drowning was afoot. Number 1. J. Paul Hill J. Paul Hill was a 20-year-old student at Columbia College Chicago, a private college that specializes in arts and media disciplines. He majored in photography and was often described to be a happy-go-lucky guy with a bright smile on his face and always willing to lend a helping hand to his friends. On February 28, 2010, Jay left his downtown residence hall, which was located at the University Center at 525 South State Street in the South Loop area. Nobody knows where exactly he went that night, 
but the following morning, his mother received a text from him that stated, Sorry, busy night. Way behind. Be in touch later. Love you. A few days later, on March 2nd, his body was recovered in the Calumet River, situated in an industrial area close to 126th Street and South Stony Island in South Chicago. He was undressed from the waist down, and an autopsy conducted the following day ruled the cause of death as inconclusive. However, another autopsy report was conducted and later revealed that Jay had extensive skull fractures on both sides of his head, as well as a broken neck bone. Still, the cause of death was ruled undetermined. To further aid police investigations, Jay's family turned to social media for help posting on online communities like Reddit in a bid to get some answers. Many of Jay's friends believe that he was murdered, noting that his camera, laptop, and wallet were missing, along with the fact that his presence in the area was questionable as it was a remote industrial site some 20 miles from his dorm. There were no traces of either drugs or alcohol in his system, which they considered to be evident ruling out any accidental or self-inflicting causes of death. Since surveillance footage showed Jay walking out of his dorm with a camera strapped around his neck, investigators believe that he had gone to the Calumet River to take pictures of its towering and weather-beaten bridges. However, the question remained as to how exactly he got there. Jay didn't own a car, and none of his friends had given him a ride there. Moreover, his city transportation card also showed that it had last been used a few days prior at a subway station near his dorm. Still, detectives speculate that he had taken a train and a bus, walking a short distance from the station to get there. Injuries reported in his autopsy were also extremely disturbing. Aside from the serious head and neck injuries, Jay also had two identical wounds on his legs that seemed consistent with lacerations from a boat propeller. He was also examined for any signs of assault, given the fact that some of his clothes were missing. However, Dr. Mitra Kalikar, the Cook County medical examiner, failed to find any evidence. One theory investigators have considered is that Jay simply fell from a bridge or lost his footing while shooting photos, resulting in him striking his head, sustaining massive injuries, and drowning. Further investigations included the Chicago Marine Unit searching the waters of the Calumet River for more clues while detectives poured over the area's pawn shop records to see if any of Jay's devices had been sold. As the leads on Jay's case started turning into dead ends, his family grew even more desperate. Three months after his body was uncovered, they paid a private investigator $15,000 to look into the case. He had another pathologist review the autopsy photos and records, who concluded that Jay had been physically harmed, proven by the injuries to both sides of his head. He also ruled out the accidental fall that local law enforcement had posited, noting the lack of significant injuries to other parts of his body, which would have been present if he had suffered a fall. Because of these findings, the Polehill family pushed even harder. They asked a state representative to help them secure a meeting with Dr. Calicar, who put Jay's case through a peer review process. In November that same year, nine months after her initial ruling, Dr. Calicar changed Jay's cause of death from undetermined to homicide, saying that he had died of either drowning or multiple injuries due to assault. 
Upon learning of the amended ruling, Tom Byrne, the Chicago Police Department's chief of detectives, put cold case detective Bob Rodriguez on Jay's possible homicide. His case remains open and is still under investigation. These five mysterious cases are just some of the thousands of others out there who died under suspicious circumstances. Even today, their families are still searching for answers, hoping that one day, the mystery of their loved one's deaths will be laid to rest. They would finally have closure and their killers, if any, would be brought to justice. If you or anyone you know have any information on the disappearances and eventual deaths of Patrick McNeil, Mark Cranach, Stephen Wright, Kaylin Lauder, Brian Welzine, and Jay Polhill, please come forward.